Well, this morning we begin our work in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you would turn there in your Bibles, you can find it also printed on the bulletin. And let me just briefly introduce the first verse of the passage we're about to read, and then we'll read it together. Book of Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs of Ecclesiastes, it's found in the Old Testament, uh, right there in the middle of the Old Testament. And when we begin reading, you'll hear the introduction of the author in verse 1. He says, the preacher, the son of David, the king over Jerusalem. And if you heard that phrase out loud, you're probably thinking, oh, I know who that is, that's King Solomon. And and you would be in good company throughout the history of the church. Many people have believed this book was written by Solomon. I tend to think it was as well. There's a, a modern argument by some good theologians and historians to think maybe this wasn't by Solomon. Maybe it was the words of Solomon, but recorded by a different author. I'll tell you this morning, I don't think it matters, though I tend to think it is by Solomon. But let me tell you, these are the words of the preacher. The son of David, the king over Jerusalem, but more importantly, these are the words of God, contained in the word of God, given to us the church that we might know him better and we might know how to glorify him. So let me ask you, if you're able, if you please stand, and I will read aloud Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, this is the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. And goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you that you have given it to us, that we might better understand you and might better understand our own need for you. We ask this morning that through the rain and through any of the distractions that the devil might try to use to distract the people of God, we ask that you would give us clarity of mind, that you would give us open eyes, that you would open our hearts, that by your spirit we would understand more of your word 
we would understand more of your grace and more of your mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. It's in your name we ask all of these things. Amen. I'm going to try and be loud and clear this morning. We'll see how long this lasts. You'll see in your bulletin this morning, there's an insert, as there always is, with the outline for the sermon. I would encourage you to grab the outline, and let me just say this. If you've looked at the outline already this morning, you're probably thinking, oh wow, this sounds like an exciting sermon. I'm just kidding. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? The outline's very simple. There's no meaning. There's no hope. That's it. What have you gotten yourselves into? Was Brian's sabbatical really that bad? Maybe you invited family and friends this morning. You're thinking, this was the wrong week. What have I done? Let me tell you this morning, we will find hope in the book of Ecclesiastes. But if we're not careful with the way that we read this book, this is all we will see of Ecclesiastes. If we're not careful with the way we read this book, it will feel like another episode of Charlie Brown. He's trying to kick the football, and Lucy's pulling it away, and he's constantly falling on his face. It'll feel like it's a wonderful life, but the bad part's when George Bailey is missing, and everything is gray and gloomy, okay? This morning, as we begin this book, we're, we're going to talk about the key for understanding Ecclesiastes. And if we understand why this book is written and what God is saying to us through the book of Ecclesiastes, we will make sense of this book in a very hopeful way. But here's the encouragement for you. If you have people who sit on the right and left of you and they're not here this morning, they come back in three or four weeks or next week and they jump in and they say, what are we doing in Ecclesiastes? Tell them to listen to this sermon. This sermon this morning I think really is the key for understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is what we describe as wisdom literature, okay? Wisdom literature, you could write that down if you're trying to get a good hold on this book. That means it's not narrative, there's no story technically being told here, it's not prophetic, there's no predictions of the future necessarily, it's not a gospel, it's not the account of the life of Jesus Christ, it's not an epistle. It's not a letter to a particular church or person. It is part of what we call wisdom literature. That is the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Five wisdom books. And they deal with the nature of wisdom. I believe wisdom is the Godward application of knowledge. Okay? The God-oriented application of knowledge. That's what this book will deal with. But we have to make a very important distinction. This distinction is crucial for understanding Ecclesiastes. This book is different than all of the other wisdom books. And to understand that, we have to step back and get a broader picture of what's happening in the wisdom literature. So let me give you a little history lesson, okay? This is the world. I know it doesn't look like the world, but it's my best attempt that's the world. You can draw yourself your own globe on your outline. It can look better than mine. That's okay. This is the world. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And he made the heavens and the earth by the power of his voice. 
He made them out of nothing, and he made them for a very important purpose. The purpose of creation is important for understanding wisdom literature. He made all of creation for his glory and for our joy. Don't forget that. It's crucial. He made it for his glory and for our joy. And God, as he's creating, he knits or he weaves into the fabric of creation various aspects of life that are designed to bring him glory and to give us joy. Let me name a few. Work. I know a lot of you are thinking, I thought work was a result of the fall. I thought when Adam and Eve sinned, then we all had to work. That's not how it goes. Work is part of the design. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will work. Okay, so work. Family. I'm just going to spit these out. You're going to see how they glorify God and we're to enjoy them. Uh, love or romance, that's important, right? Friends. Uh, we have nature. Food. Food is made for God's glory and for our joy. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, eat of anything in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Food. Uh, there is leisure or rest. Such a good thing. And then beauty. Beauty in all of creation to give God glory and to bring us joy. Here's where Ecclesiastes is different than all of the other wisdom literature, okay? Much of the wisdom literature of Scripture deals with wisdom concerning the way God created the world. The book of Proverbs is the classic example, okay? You've read Proverbs. It is also by Solomon, and Proverbs has a ton of cause and effect, right? You do this, and that will happen. You don't do that, and that won't happen. But if you do that other thing, then this will happen, right? You understand Proverbs, okay? I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs 22, verse 8, says that where there is injustice, chaos reigns, okay? Injustice and chaos, correlation, right? Proverbs 14, 23, with much toil there is great reward, but where there is mere speech, there is only poverty. See, toil, reward, speech, poverty, you get the correlation. One that you're all probably aware of, Proverbs 22, verse 3, raise up a child in the way in which he should go, and he will not quickly depart from it. You, you know that, right? And what we realize is that this is the way that God created all of creation to be, okay? And we have experienced some of those correlations, haven't we? We have been just and we found order. We have worked hard and at times we've been rewarded. We have raised up children the way they should go and some of them have not departed from it. But there's a problem. Because for every time we've experienced that, we've also experienced the opposite, haven't we? We've been just and chaos has followed. We have worked, but there's been no reward. Some of us have raised up children in the way in which they should go, and they have departed from it. And we might ask the question, well, what gives? Well, what's going on here? It's very simple. Proverbs largely deals with wisdom according to the created order. Ecclesiastes will do the very opposite. Ecclesiastes will do wisdom according to the broken world. Now that this is broken, what does wisdom look like? You begin to see it in the passage this morning in verse 2, right? Verse 2, very infamous passage. 
The preacher says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This phrase is repeated 32 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? So uh, this is by far the most common phrase. It defines this book, vanity of vanities. And if you're reading the King James or the NIV, you probably read uh, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, all is meaningless. Or emptiness, emptiness, all is empty. You kind of get the picture of what's being communicated here. Now, this, this is the first point, okay? It appears, as the writer is writing this, that he is saying that there is no meaning in all of life. And I want to tell you that word vanity. It is the Hebrew word. I'm just going to transliterate it here. It's the Hebrew word habel. Habel. I tell you that because it's important, it's important, it's a, it's a vivid illustration of what's being described here. The word chabel, it does not mean vanity, it does not mean emptiness, though that's part of the idea. It is the word for a vapor, a, a cloud, something that dissipates into the atmosphere, okay? The passage literally says vapor of vapor, all is vapors. All is vapors, all of life is vapors, okay? You get the picture, don't you? I was, oftentimes our family likes to go hiking, and this has happened to us before, but it happened again this summer. We were in Colorado visiting my brother, and we're hiking at a high elevation, and the, the trail and the mountain ahead of us we see is covered with clouds. And as my children often do, they say, I can't wait to get up there to that cloud, I want to get into the clouds. And we continue hiking up the trail, and we get to where the clouds should be, and it's kind of like, okay, where's the clouds at? I thought we would get to the clouds. Um, and I think there's an idea that maybe we'll be able to wrap our hands around that cloud, or we'll feel it around us. But it's either around us, and we can't see it, or it's dissipated, or disintegrated, or it's gone somewhere. But that's the idea that the writer of Ecclesiastes is communicating concerning the nature of all of life. It's fleeting. It feels empty. I see it from afar, but I can't get my hands on it. And every time I try, it's slipping through my fingers. That's what this book is all about, okay? Now listen, this book of Ecclesiastes, okay, that is a vanity of vanity, all is vanities, the book of Ecclesiastes, by all accounts, is only referenced one time in the New Testament, which is strange, right? Because we've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets and the Pentateuch and all the minor prophets, and they're getting quoted all over the New Testament, but we have one reference to Ecclesiastes. And whenever something is done one time, you know it's significant. So it's a big deal. It is referenced in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, if you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? Romans 8, 18 through 20. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, and this is what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Give your attention to God's Word. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation 
was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. You could take the word futility and you could circle it and you could draw a line all the way back to Ecclesiastes and you could circle every mention of vanity because it's the same word, okay? So Paul writes in the Greek, but we know that this is the Greek version of the Hebrew word habel, very same word. So much so that when Paul writes to the Romans, I will guarantee you that the Jewish readers who were hearing this were immediately connecting his words to Ecclesiastes, okay? Well, Paul is speaking about what the writer of Ecclesiastes was speaking about. And there in Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul will begin to clarify why the writer of Ecclesiastes indeed is feeling as if all of life is meaningless, as if all of life is empty, okay? Did you hear it? There in, in this passage, as the Apostle Paul is speaking, he says that the creation was subjected to futility. That is, it was subjected to meaninglessness, to emptiness. Now, this is significant, and it's crucial here, okay? So listen, Paul does not say that because of sin, creation became empty. He does not say that in a very passive way, all of creation became empty and meaningless. What does he say? He says that God himself, God himself subjected the creation to futility. God did it. So essentially what we read in Romans 8 is that, that God essentially broke the way the world was to work, and he broke work, and he made family feel meaningless, and love to feel empty, and friends to be unsatisfying, and nature not to fill us up, and food not to bring us contentment, and leisure not to be the way it was designed, and beauty to be broken. That God did all of this. He subjected the creation to futility. This is not a study in theoreticals, okay? This is a very practical reality because you all have experienced this. This is your experience, okay? We invest ourselves in careers and jobs and we think, man, they're gonna be great and they're gonna satisfy us. And then one day we wake up and we say, well, okay, this is empty. What do I get out of this? Where is this going? We spend our time on relationships, and relationships are good, don't get me wrong, okay? But we think ultimate meaning will come out of them, and we realize one day we're not getting out of them what we thought we would. I'm no more satisfied than I was when I began this, okay? Children and students, how many of you went back to school this past week? Just raise your hand if you went back to school. Yeah, even teachers, I love that. Come on, get your hands up. Yeah, and a lot of you went back to school this past week. Terrific, wonderful. Going back to school was the worst time of year for me, every year. Maybe you relate with me, maybe you don't, but here's what I mean, okay? For me, summer was everything. And if I could get through the school year, counting down the days and get to summer, it was going to be good. And I was going to be lazy, and I was going to rest, and I was going to spend time with friends, and I was going to travel. And I thought that summer would satisfy me. And what would happen is every year I'd be moderately discontented with summer. I would get through summer, it would feel fleeting and moving so quick I couldn't get my hands on it, and then school would be back and the countdown would begin. If you students, children, if you experience that same sort of emptiness 
every summer being a little bit disappointed, you understand the futility of life. All of this was designed to bring God glory and to bring us joy, but God subjected it to futility. Now you ought rightly to ask the question, why? Why would God do that? Why would God take the creation and subject it to a sense of emptiness, of meaninglessness? Well, listen, if you turn to Romans chapter 8 and you were reading there, you saw that I forgot the, the last two words of the verse, didn't I? I left them off. Verse 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Isn't that great? That God caused all of the things that he had woven into the fabric of society, that he caused them to be subject to a sense of emptiness in hope. That there was some sort of hopefulness in that. Now listen, we don't have a long time to explain that this morning, but let me just tell you briefly how that works. At the fall of man, there's a number of things that happen, but probably the most significant is that the heart of man is twisted and contorted. That our hearts are kind of reoriented to self-worship, and we idolize ourselves, and all of the world then is simply for our enjoyment. That's it. God knew that the creation that he had made for his glory and for our joy would only serve negative ends if we were to live our lives enjoying those things and not sensing our great need. You know that? So if our hearts were broken and we needed God, but we went to work every day and we thought, but this is the most satisfying thing in the world. I need nothing else. All the days of my life will be satisfied in my work. I'm so happy and content. If we did that with these things, we would go to the very last days of our lives and we would then transition into eternal damnation. God did not want that for his people, so you know what he did? He subjected the creation to futility. That we would involve ourselves with these things and we would say, well, I, I, I feel a sense of joy, but I also feel that I, uh, there's a wanting. That I'm, I'm not satisfied with this. That there must be something more. And that God would use that by his spirit to open the eyes of the heart. To lead lost sinners to him, that they would cling to him as their only hope, okay? So there is no meaning, at least it seems that, in all of creation. But then the second point, the thing I've written down in your hand, there's no hope. I'm going to write it down here. There's no hope, dot, 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 okay? There's no hope. This is the rest of this passage. Let me just, again, read it out loud. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the winds return. Listen, you've heard it all already. I'm not going to read it all again. But what Solomon is saying, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, is, is listen, not only is life vanity of vanity, all is vanity, but this is universally true. He says a generation comes and a generation goes. Look, here's the generation, okay? 
This is a generation. It's a generation of stick figures. They come and they go. And then the sun up in the sky. The sun rises and the sun sets. Everything in this first chapter of Ecclesiastes is about this cycle. It is all repetitive and it will be true for all time, for all peoples, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every walk of life. Lest you think, well, this is the problem in their day, but, you know, we've got it much better now. Maybe we can be satisfied with the things of life. Lest you think, you know, well, it's only because I'm poor, but once I have more money and more things, then I will be satisfied. Then these things will really function to give me satisfaction. Solomon says, don't be fooled. It's true for every generation. Sun rises and the sun sets. The streams, they flow into the oceans. The, the ocean never overflows, right? What has been done is what will be done. It's like on repeat, and you cannot avoid this, okay? But there's a key phrase that helps us to understand exactly what Solomon is saying here, all right? And that comes in verse 9. There in verse 9, he says, there is nothing new under the sun. Vanity of vanities is repeated 32 times in this book. Nothing new under the sun will be repeated 25 times, okay? So if you understand those two phrases, you don't even got to read the book. No, I'm just kidding. You do have to read the book. Okay, but you will get a good grasp on what's happening in Ecclesiastes. Now, what does it mean? It's nothing new under the sun. See, I, th I think that's significant because the, the writer of this book is telling us that under this sun, on this sphere, from horizon to horizon, as it concerns these generations of people, in all that God has created, there's no hope. That ought to cause us to ask the question, then, where is their hope? Where does hope come from in this scenario? See, no hope under the sun. No hope under the sun. He will repeat that again and again. That's intentional, okay? There is no hope under the sun. There's a universal hopelessness in all of creation. Maybe you're thinking... Maybe you're thinking this, well, I have hope, I have meaning, right? I have a purpose in life, I'm a, I'm a fill in the blank, that really gives me meaning and purpose, or I, I am a, a parent, that gives me meaning and purpose, or I'm a doctor or a nurse, yeah, that gives me meaning and purpose, there's some meaning and purpose to that, right? But let me tell you this, you may feel like that now, but just give it time. At some point, we will all realize that everything in all of creation will not satisfy us, does not give us ultimate meaning and purpose. Where does hope come from? The psalmist says in 121, I lift my eye to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The more I read Ecclesiastes, the more I'm convinced that the writers of the New Testament, as they speak about Jesus, are so clear about his otherworldliness, about the fact that he was not created that he is not part of this under the sun, that he is very God of very God. I mean, that's all the gospel of John. That's why we read John 17 this morning, the high priestly prayer. John says, he records Jesus' words, and Jesus says, listen, I am not of this world. He says it again and again, and the world's going to hate you because I'm not of this world, and if you're with me, you're not of this world. The Father sent me. I'm not from this world. I'm from somewhere else. The New Testament writers will so emphasize the otherworldliness of Jesus, the, the deity of Jesus, as a response 
to the writer of Ecclesiastes, where does our hope come from? It comes from out of this world. It comes from God the Father who sends His Son that the creation might be redeemed, that we might find genuine, real, unfettered, everlasting hope. And that's where hope is. So don't, don't fully believe there's no hope. There's no hope under the sun, but there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we make sense of Ecclesiastes, okay? It's how we make sense of Ecclesiastes. Listen, we're going to read this book for the next 15 weeks, and every week we read it, you're going to come to it, and there's going to be some sobering moments, and Ecclesiastes is going to hit you in the face like a ton of bricks. Boom! But we're going to pick ourselves up, and we're going to ask questions about the emptiness, and the meaninglessness, and the vanity, and the confusion of creation, and we're going to look to this book. Week after week, it will be an experiment by the writer trying to satisfy him with the things of the world. Over and over again, he's going to explore them all. We're going to explore them together, okay? And here's the beauty of this book. Not only will we find greater hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only will God use this to sanctify us, but one of the most amazing things about this is he will use this to give us the ability and the aptitude to speak to people of all walks of life, okay? Because when we sit with people in this world who are broken, and maybe some of the greatest tragedies that you can ever hear, we will have a category for this, okay? We'll have a category for losing loved ones or, or losing a child. We'll have a category for losing a home, losing a spouse. We'll have a category for not being able to find work, okay? We will be able to speak about the emptiness of life, the vanity of life, and then we will be able to speak about our hope. The high king of heaven, our treasure he is, the one who was and is and is to come, very God of very God, who was with God and is God, the one who is not of this world, who has come to save us, that we might have hope, we will be able to speak clearly about the only hope, not under the sun, but the only hope for humanity, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's going to be wonderful as we work through this book. I hope you come back next week as we look at the rest of this chapter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We know maybe not the first book we would choose to read, but nonetheless, we thank you for sobering, realistic pictures and portraits of life in this world. It is not as you created it to be, and yet you have not left us without hope. Lord God, I pray that the things of this world would leave us wanting and that we would constantly be turned to you and that you would give sense and meaning to all of life. That through you, our relationships would have deep and abiding meaning. That through you, our work would be purposeful and meaningful. That through you, our relationships and our friends and nature and the food we eat and the things that we do and the way that we rest and our leisure activities and the beauty of all of creation, that through you, all of this would make sense and purpose and that we would glorify you and that we would enjoy this creation eagerly waiting for your return 
yearning for the moment when all things are redeemed by the power of your voice. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we ask all of this. Amen.